Hello everyone, this is Dr. Nigro again with our fourth installation of Psychology Unplugged. I'd like to thank everybody for all of your comments, feedback, suggestions. It's really helped me in terms of figuring out different directions. So we're talking about the issues that our audience wants to hear about. So for this episode, I wanted to start to incorporate uh, the, the different disciplines. We have diagnostics, which is what I focus primarily on. We have uh, psychotherapy, which uh, myself and my wife do, as well as many of my uh, wonderful colleagues. And Psychopharmacology, uh, certainly an incredibly important aspect of mental health. So it's kind of a trifold perspective. You have diagnostics, you have therapy, you have uh, psychopharmacology, all different disciplines, but all interconnected in the treatment of mental illness. So today I would like to introduce my lovely wife, Julie, who is a psychiatric nurse practitioner so we can gain some a better perspective on psychopharmacology and its role in mental health. So Julie, as a psychiatric nurse practitioner, what is your primary role? To assess and evaluate um, what's going on with someone, um, people will present with certain symptoms and we address the symptoms. Diagnostically, um, it can be very challenging at first. Some 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 people have straightforward issues that they're, they're anxious or they have depression. Um, sometimes it's not always that easy to figure out right away. People might have some other kind of process going on. Um, so essentially, it's really to treat what is being presented to us at that time. So walk us through kind of an initial process of new patient is assigned to you. What's your methodology? What's, what are the steps? Well, so we, we, first off, we do a, a thorough history. Um, I particularly, I work very closely with clinicians with every case that I have with my, with most cases. Um, I find that collaborative, um, the collaborative approach is always best for the patient. It's best for me. And, um, you know, it, it seems to be, you know, for collaborative care, it's always a, it's always a win-win. Um, the other part of it is, um, just trying to figure out what's going on with someone. Um, the, usually people will come in and say, we'll ask questions like, What's your history, family history, um, developmental, uh, occupational, educational, um, you know, medical, medical history, um, history of what's being presented in the moment, um, of our first meeting. How long has it been going on? Um, is it weeks, months? Generally, I find that people, un unless it's an acute state of anxiety, um, I find that people have been struggling years before they even get in treatment sometimes. Um, that's usually what what happens in my opinion. What would you say are <clears throat> some of the biggest challenges and obstacles to prescribing psychiatric meds? Um well gosh. Well first of all, you know, the first the first gut reaction is, you know, how can I help this person? Um what's the best way to go about it? Uh there's several things to choose from. And, um, you always, it's like trying on shoes in a way, um, poor metaphor, but it's really true. Some, some medications are a good fit for people. Um, I can't tell you how many people come to me and say, Oh, my friend's taking this and I want to take it. You know, it doesn't really work out that way, but it's really trying to treat 
the issues that are impacting this person's life and to help them get to a better place of functioning in a happier place. Uh, we don't make meds that are ha- make make people happy though, but um, happier. Isn't that what everybody wants though? The magic pill. Yes, they do. I I have a little fairy godmother wand that someone made me once that I take out sometimes and say, I wish I could just do this to do that. But I sometimes it just takes time, and by the time someone's you know sitting across from me, they've been they've been waiting so long for that appointment and. They're trying to jam all this information into one session and they forget things, of course, because they're anxious and understandably so. But, um, you know, that's, that's the way it works. And I usually will do really quick follow ups with people. Um, first, the first initial eval time. And this is with managed care. This is what insurance pays for just to educate you a little bit. Private practice, it's a little bit different. We have a little bit more wiggle room and we have a little bit more time, um, to work with our clients, but, so we get 15-minute follow-ups after you meet with somebody for an hour. You basically try and just make sure they're, you know, medically healthy enough to, you know, imbibe on a on a medication trial. Um, but, you know, the pressure on us, and that's part of what makes my world go around, is how quickly can I help without doing any harm and help people to get on doses of medication where they're not having horrible side effects so that they tolerate the medication instead of throwing them in the garbage and giving up. So let's let's talk about the different med classes. Starting with um let's start with the antidepressants. Yeah, so there's there's several of them. Um I mean again, this is to this is uh I mean it's I don't know what exactly you want me to talk about. Uh, different names, different types of meds, what they're treated for, high doses, low doses, efficacy. Well, to put it out there right away, um, everyone, every provider I know prescribes differently. Sometimes we, you know, we collaborate a lot on our care. I know I have a, a great group of ladies that I work with, um, who I ask questions and we ask each other questions. So it's important to not have a lot of pride in this field. It's important to know when you are stuck. And you ask people for help, um, not in a desperate sort of way, but just in a like, you know, you want to do the, the goal is to treat somebody the best way that you can possibly treat the quickest way you can possibly treat. Um, so the antidepressants, they're the first go to. So usually when people are feeling down, you know, primary cares are the front runners on this, you know, they're the ones doing this, this anxiety and depression screens in the office. Um, they're, they're the ones who kind of may start. Many of them are comfortable enough, uh, trying different medications with patients who present as depressed. And that sometimes works out really well. But then, you know, some primary cares and understandably so they don't feel super comfortable doing that. The problem is, is that it takes a long time to get people in with people like me. Um, it's just a huge wait list. It's not easy to come by, um, by the time someone is in the chair across from me or t- doing telehealth with me, they've been waiting months and months and months, and uh, some with, sometimes without treatment at all. So people usually generally present, if they have anxiety or depression, they're depressed. So then you do, you know, a real, hopefully a thorough history on how, when that came about. So where do I go from there? Well, 
there are several routes you can take. There's the SSRIs, there are SNRIs, there are all sorts of antidepressants out there. Again, all of the providers are different, whether you're a psych NP, whether you're a psychiatrist, everyone has their go-to meds and everyone has their comfort meds, the ones that they've seen work. What about the dosing levels versus low-dose antidepressants versus high-dose antidepressants? Well, so a lot of people do not know uh, out there, and uh, I learned just because of what I do for a living, um, that antidepressants, um, they really gypped, though, <laughs> they really they really should have added on antidepressant anxiolytic to that, um, all of the SS, SSRIs and SNRIs, um, because at the low doses of all these medications, it treats panic disorder. It, it treats anxiety disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, agoraphobia, OCD, um, social anxiety disorder, PTSD. Those are the medications that at the lower doses tend to really help people with the symptoms of all of those uh, anxiety disorders. At the higher doses, that's when you're trying to target depression. Um, so, and that's what takes takes time because people, you don't know how they're going to respond to a medication. They might be having terrible side effects, but it's like, okay, stick with it, stick with it. Do you want to stick with it? Do you want to try something else? But in order to treat major depressive disorder, you really have to, you really have to get that antidepressant dose up to a therapeutic dose, which is the higher dose, which is sometimes the highest dose of a medication, all of which varies depending on which medication you're using. Okay. How about the mood stabilizers? Yeah, so sometimes when people show up in treatment, they're feeling depressed. Usually that's when they seek treatment. And this is a generalization, but it's also just based on people who um, have bipolar or bipolarity going on, whether it's uh, cyclothymia or bipolar 2 um, and even bipolar 1. Um, but pretty much bipolar 1 usually, they wind up landing in the hospital at some point. Um but bipolar 2 is something that so many people, I think, walk around with, and they're very high-functioning people. Um, but sometimes when people, they don't, if they have hypomania, they love it. So they crave it, they love it. They sometimes don't even know what it is, but they have bouts of energy, but they're not getting into trouble. They're being very productive. So they're happy with that. They don't seek treatment during that part, but they'll show up at your office when they're feeling depressed. So they're not reporting the hypomania. They don't even know what it is sometimes. They don't recognize it. If you put someone like that on an antidepressant, they're going to get worse. So that's the part of where this mood stabilizer sometimes as a safety net. If you kind of feel like it, get a sense that that's what's going on with somebody, um, or if somebody's chronically bipolar um, or, or schizophrenic, we use mood stabilizers all the time. All right. How about the antipsychotics? You have the first generation and the second generation antipsychotics. Yeah. So the first generation antipsychotics are probably what you would recognize if you've seen like one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Um, a lot of people still use them. Um, I think the newer practitioners don't tend to reach for those. We reach for the second generation. Um, but a lot of psychiatrists and um providers out there will definitely put somebody on Haldol if they're having um, severe psychosis. Um, the The issue with the, and I, again, I'm, I'm no scholar, but the issue with the, the first generation antipsychotics is that if you, if you kind of look back and see, you know, how they used to film inpatient units 
people didn't have any affect. They, the medications would take care of the psychosis, um, but they would also make their affect, patients' affect very flat. Um, so that's kind of what you were seeing. But the second generations came along based on those and also, you know, dystonia, tardive dyskinesia, uh, uh, akathisia, uh, all kinds of extrapyramidal sy- uh, symptoms that happen with the first generation antipsychotics, which have to do with movement, involuntary movement um, all over the body in various parts of the body. Um, they switched, they created the second generation antipsychotics. Those are the ones you're seeing on television right now. You're seeing, you're seeing lorazodone, which is Latuda. You're seeing, uh, Vralar, which is, um, probably one of the newest. There's, there are other ones that are new, but, um, I'm just mentioning just a couple. Um, and, um, Abilify, Aripiprazole. These are all big major, uh, medications that are second generation that not only treat bipolar disorder, uh, schizophrenia, but they also treat mania, um, for, for the most part at times, but they also, people have affect with them. They feel like themselves, like, because they can feel, they can, they can interact. They have mood states like, um, laughing, crying, you know, normal, like we take it, like we, like we take advantage of. So that's why the second generations um, have been so successful. But, yeah. All right. How about the benzodiazepines, the magic pill that everybody's chasing for their anxiety, especially in the current bizarre world that we live in and even prior to that? What's your perspective and information on those? Yeah, so the the benzodiazepines, um, they work. You know, they work. Um, in, in, in psychiatry, like any other profession or even the world, you know, the pendulum swings. One thing is great one generation and then it switches to another, you know, something's not so great. Um, so I think, uh, the benzodiazepines originally were designed to help people get up onto an SSRI or an SNRI to treat generalized anxiety. They weren't really meant for, you know, much like Ambien was never meant for, it was only meant for transient insomnia. It was not meant for, to be taken every single day. Um, it's supposed to re-regulate your sleep cycle. That's a hypnotic medication, but it's addictive. The benzodiazepines are the same way. They, um, people in a generation and providers, you know, again, everyone prescribes differently. Um, it's not that I'm against them. I'm not. Um, but there are a lot of people who over the last generation have been prescribed high doses of benzodiazepines. Problem is, is that there are, people get psychologically used to them and they, they're physiologically dependent on them. Um, and they have a real time coming off of them. And, and after the last few years, we've learned that the long-term use of these medications can cause memory loss, cognitive impairment. And yes, and don't quote me, but just, I think they're curious that it may be, may lead to dementia. All right. How about the next class of medications, the stimulants, the ADHD meds? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not an ADHD expert by any means. I'm really in my practice, very devoted entirely on trying to help somebody's mood state and help them to feel better. Sometimes people will present as I can't focus, I can't concentrate, but it's really because they're really anxious and, you know, they don't necessarily have ADHD. So if someone takes a stimulant and they're anxious, well, guess what? They're going to get more anxious and it's going to make them worse. 
um, people who have psychosis, there's a danger with stimulants because it can, it can disrupt that, um, process. It can, it can increase that, um, those symptoms. Um, stimulants are highly controlled. Um, they're probably better for people who have a combined presentation of ADHD. Um, but they do work. They do help people. I look at it like the last layer of treatment. If I have somebody who's stable doing better and they're diagnosed with ADHD, then we treat with stimulants. Um, if they're medically cleared for that, um, the, they're, they're effective. The methylphenidate, um, you know, all the, all the Ritalins, um, Ritalin LA, Concerta, Focalin, um, you know, just to name a few. And then there are some more modern, the most, not most recent, we have, you know, all kinds of new ones, but the Vivance is uh, one that um, is, is very popular, fancy. Um, and sometimes if people, you know, don't have never been on a stimulant medication, they might benefit from, if they have the inattentive, inattentive type and they're a little anxious, they might benefit from atomoxetine, which is Stratera. It could kill two birds with one stone, excuse me. Um, and it's always best to do that, by the way. <laughs> I feel like it's best to let the less medications for the, for the most a- efficacy is the best case scenario. So, but the problem with stimulants is that people can get used to them. Sometimes they need more and more and more and more. And they're very highly controlled and they're also highly abused. And how about the last class, um, <clears throat> sleep meds? Um, so sleep medicines, generally, um, we use, you know, the trazodone, the mirtazapine, you know, again, um, if someone, you know, has bipolar disorder, they might benefit from Seroquel, um, and all, I mean, there's so many, um, the sleep disorders very often are a result of, um, you know, sleep, a medical condition. Um, a lot of times, you know, we have people who are chronic insomniacs that, really need a sleep study, you know, and, and they find out that they have sleep apnea. Why am I waking up in the middle of the night? Well, what happens when you wake up in the middle of the night? You're staring at the ceiling, your eyes wide open, and that's when you start worrying, right? I mean, doesn't that happen to all of us? So the sleep medications, the hypnotics, you know, Ambien can be very dangerous. I think Lunesta seems to be be pretty effective. Um, again, you know, Insomnia comes with mental illness too. So if someone is very depressed, they can be either hyper, hyper, have insomnia or hypersomnia where they're sleeping all the time. Um, And or if people are anxious, they're generally not able to sleep because they can't shut their brain off. Or if someone has bipolar disorder and they're having a manic episode, they're not sleeping for days and they wind up in a hospital. Um, and uh, so those are the parts of the insomnia and sleep that are very important, crucial with psychiatric medications. Um, but you always have to rule out a medical condition. So how does your discipline of psychopharmacology interact with my discipline of neuropsychology? Well, I would say that when I meet adolescents, um, if I, in, in a perfect world, like in our private practice, I can just, we work together very closely, but in our, our, you know, our full-time jobs, there's so many patients and so little resources. So in a perfect world, I'd have, I'd have you test everybody so I could medicate them um, appropriately. Uh, so I think the most 
I think when I feel like there's something wrong um, that I'm not picking up on, um, that's, you know, diagnostically, you know, with, with, I think, adolescents, they're pretty high risk. And if they have a family history of bipolarity, some of these kids are adopted, and they don't know what their family history is. So, you know, you have a guardian just reporting, we don't know. So, um, you know, you never want to take a chance. But again, by the time they get in your office, or they're with you on telehealth, they wanted help months ago, maybe even more, and they're just desperate. And it's really, it's really just part of what it's like out there. And, and, you know, how hard it is for people to get treatment, and how much they just want to be fixed, and they want to be helped. And I, I totally understand it. It's just, oh, my God, I'm finally here. And then if you have a kid with a, a, a history of bipolarity in the family or schizophrenia, you're nervous because you don't really want to rush them on an antidepressant because hmm, I could make this person worse. And it's a kid, a ch- uh, an adolescent. I don't treat kids, little children. But so I, that is a must, must to, must test situation. It is a must neuro, send them for testing. Um, so many people come in very complex and you don't know what's going on with them. Is this their PTSD that's affecting their mood and are, they're, you know, completely dysregulated? Um, is it personality disorder? I mean, those are fascinating. Uh, so many disorders mimic one another. Um, you know, bipolar, borderline personality disorder, um, you know, in, in, sometimes people are really struggling and they hear things and see things that don't really exist. And that's a very scary place for somebody because there's not like a big chat room where you talk about that. These people are, you know, feel very alone and very scared. So, but anything that is complicated, if it's not straightforward, I send them for testing. Um, but in our private practice, we do testing first and then we, we get, uh, we do the, proper treatment interventions after that. And can I just ask of the 60, 70, 80 page evals that I write, how much of it you read? Yeah, so I can speak to me and all my colleagues uh, that use you for testing of our clients. Yes, we read the last page and only the last page because that gives the diagnosis. And it's always diagnosed. It's always, it's like, I know I hate, well, who doesn't love the dog whisperer? But, you know, use this stuff, use the tools, but you're, you're, I mean, you're good at what you do. So I feel like, you know, anyone is in good hands. I'm, and, and it's, and it's so amazing for a prescriber who's perplexed to have that diagnostic clarity. I can't even tell you so that we can literally focus on the treatment more aggressively, um, and more effectively. That is, that is such, it's a wonderful thing to be able to have. Well, it's a great perspective. Any final thoughts? I don't think you asked me about mood stabilizers. I think we did mood stabilizers. I don't know. Oh, well, then, we'll do it another time. All right. If we we'll listen, if we haven't done it, we'll check. This is our 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 banter. Um, so, you know, from a diagnostic standpoint, one of the main advantages. As Julie mentioned, with you know managed care, she gets then a prescriber will get sixty minutes for an initial intake, and then fifteen minutes to chase symptoms. Now, I believe people have in the field have a capacity to make a diagnosis. My personal and professional perspective is, I believe wholeheartedly that therapy and medications 
without testing is like having surgery without an x-ray. Maybe you'll catch it. Maybe it won't. Maybe you'll make it better. You can certainly make it worse. So I'm glad that I was able to bring Julie on the, the show. She'll be on, obviously, much more, uh, as we, especially as we get into different disorders. Oh, she's Julie has one more thing. Hold on. I don't know if I said this before, but I do want to reiterate the fact, if I haven't said it before, but to, to point out that in, in psychiatry, you could have one client and five different providers in the same room and get five different five different therapeutic approaches. Everybody has their own uh, finesse. Um, and and I, I, I don't like to use art, but actually it kind of is, but it's not to, you know, pat myself on the back because believe me, I'm, you know, I'm a human being in progress. But, you know, the, the fact that I think a lot of people don't know that there is no real protocol in psychiatry. So, you're going to get, why are you on this medicine? I don't know why I'm on this. Ask questions. Ask why you're on the medications that you're on. I have so many patients who I inherit, um, who come to me and sometimes, and, and this is not, a, this is not a diss to any provider because I pretty, I really believe that people are out there doing the best that they can, but to educate people what they're taking, why they're taking, what it's supposed to do, what are the side effects, what, are, what is this medication, medication all about? and really educate people about what medications really mean. And that's a huge passion of mine. All right, great. Well, thanks, Julie. Um, we'd be on our, the show a lot more often because as we start to move into the different disorders, um, I just wanted, like I've said before, to lay the groundwork with the different theories and philosophies. And Julie brought up a lot of different medication names. So it'll start to make sense as we move through things and we'll be able to reference back to these different points. So until next week, remember, you can contact me through Psychology Today. Uh, email me, as people have been doing, through our uh, email address, which is psychologyunplugged at outlook.com. And always remember, learn to become independent of the good opinions of other people. Until next time, be well, and we'll talk to you then. Thanks. <laughs>